0: Welcome to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective Podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and in this podcast, we interview leaders and experts in critical care. And for today, we go to Chicago to discuss sepsis subphenotypes by temperature trajectories with Dr. Siva Bavani. Go ahead and uh, introduce yourself, please.
1: Sure. Um, Dominique, thank you for having me uh, and inviting me to the Breathe Easy podcast, and thank you for your interest in my research. My name is Siva Bavani. I'm a pulmonary critical care fellow at the University of Chicago. In my research, I use big data to identify subgroups within sepsis with the goal of discovering personalized treatment strategies.
0: Great. And uh, you recently had a publication in the Blue Journal uh, entitled identifying novel sepsis subphenotypes using temperature trajectories. Um, maybe you could tell us why you performed the study?
1: Sure. Um, so the premise behind the study is, first, sepsis is very heterogeneous. It's a group of diverse responses to various infections that we've lumped into one category. The second premise is that there's lots of longitudinal data in the EHR, and all of that data is currently being underutilized. So there's all this unused clinical data that has the potential to identify subgroups in the heterogeneous syndrome of sepsis. So one of the pieces of routine clinical data that stands out is body temperature. So body temperature is a key link to the immune system. The febrile response to infection has been known since Hippocrates. So for thousands of years, we've known about this. And we, we've measured body temperature with thermometers for over 200 years and currently we check temperature every couple hours on every patient that enters the hospital. So it's a repository of longitudinal data, and it could potentially give us insight into the host immune response and sepsis. But instead of using all this dynamic data, we kind of use temperature as a static measurement, uh, you know, to differentiate fever from non-fever at a semi-arbitrary cutoff. So the background to the study and the rationale was to figure out whether longitudinal temperature measurements could be used to identify differential responses to infection as a path towards finding meaningful subgroups in sepsis.
0: Great. So, why don't you go ahead and show us how you, uh, tell us how you performed your study um, and specifically how this study differs from prior studies on the same topic?
1: Sure. Um, so, I'll start by addressing kind of the prior studies on this topic. So, uh, to my knowledge, there's no studies using temperature trajectory specifically to identify sepsis subgroups, but there are, of course, studies that have used other techniques to identify sepsis subgroups. So, it is a topic um, of interest currently um, to do, uh, differentiate this heterogeneous syndrome into meaningful subgroups. So, there studies from the Gaines and the MARS Consortium and a recent reanalysis of the VANISH trial as well, and these groups have found sepsis endotypes using transcriptomic signatures. And so, these gene sequencing and transcriptomic studies are important, and they allow us to take a deep dive into the biological underpinnings of sepsis. My study approaches the same question, but from a different angle. So, my study evaluates whether we can use routinely collected clinical data to find these meaningful subgroups. And so, the study itself was a retrospective analysis of large inpatient data sets from two different hospitals. So, it included over 30,000 patients with community-acquired infection. And I used group-based trajectory modeling, which is a statistical tool which identifies clusters of patients following similar trajectories of a variable over time. So in this case, temperature over time. So it looks for patients following similar trajectories in temperature over time. And I used temperature measurements from the first 72 hours of admission to identify the latent trajectory subphenotypes. And the objective was to find out what were the clinical characteristics and outcomes in these subgroups.
0: And so, go ahead and tell us your findings.
1: Sure. Uh, So, I found four subgroups or subphenotypes of sepsis based on these temperature trajectories. And I named these um, subphenotypes based on the shape of the trajectory. So we have the hyperthermic slow resolvers. These are patients that start off with higher than normal temperatures and their temperatures stay elevated. We have the hyperthermic fast resolvers, and these are the patients that start off also with high temperatures, but they defervesce. There's the normal thermic patients who maintain normal body temperatures, and finally the hypothermic patients who maintain low body temperatures. So, the first important finding was that you can't place a person into one of these groups based on a single temperature measurement. So, uh, for example, over 80% of our patients had at least one hypothermic measurement. So at least 80% had a temperature measurement below 36 degrees, uh, Celsius. But only 29% were, a percent were actually in the hypothermic route. Um, second, I found that these temperature trajectories in the first 72 hours predict death days to weeks later. And finally, the most revealing finding for me uh, was that these subphenotypes were drastically different from each other in terms of age, demographics, comorbidities, and even inflammatory markers. So the hyperthermic slow resolvers, these are the patients that start off with high temperatures and kind of stay high the whole time. They were the youngest patients. They had the least comorbidities. So the healthiest patients coming in, they had the highest levels of inflammatory markers. And then we have the hypothermic patients who are kind of the complete opposite, They were the oldest. They had the most comorbidities, so the sickest patients coming in, and they had the lowest levels of inflammatory markers.
0: And in terms of outcomes of these patients, uh, what did you find?
1: So the outcomes were interesting because the group that did the best were the hyperthermic fast resolvers. So hyperthermic fast resolvers had mortality rates of less than 3%. And these are the patients, again, who start off with high temperatures and they deprives. Um And the patients with the highest mortality rates were the hypothermic patients, so the ones that maintained low body temperatures, as well as hyperthermic slow resolvers. And again, these are the patients who are the uh, hyperthermic slow resolvers are the youngest, the ones with the least comorbidities, the healthiest coming in, but they you know don't deprives. They keep that fever and they had of the highest mortality along with the hypothermic patients.
0: So how do you interpret your findings um, and uh, what limitations uh, did you identify in extrapolating these findings to general use?
1: Mm-hmm. So the first thing is that the, these findings were consistent across large inpatient data sets of two different hospitals. So this suggested that there might be a true biological phenomenon underlying these temperature trajectories. And beyond that, the hypothesis or the interpretation of these findings was that there is a potential immunological basis underlying these temperature trajectory subphenotypes. Specifically, the hypothermic subphenotype appears to be a hypoinflammatory group. So these patients are the oldest. They have the most comorbidities. So as you get older, your immune system is less robust. Um, As you get more comorbidities like cancer, uh, renal failure, these things are going to affect your um, immune system as well. And additionally, the hypothermic group had the most immunosuppression in terms of medications. They have the lowest ESR, the lowest CRP, and the lowest white count. So all of these characteristics suggest that the hypothermic subphenotype is a hypoinflammatory group. And on the other hand, we have the hyperthermic slow resolvers, and they appear to be a hyperinflammatory group. So, these patients are the youngest and have the least comorbidities. So, they have the least immunosuppressive diseases coming in. They have the least exposure to immunosuppressive medications. They have the highest ESR, the highest CRP, and the highest white count. And so, these seem to be a hyperinflammatory group. And then we have the hyperthermic fast resolvers who had the lowest mortality rate. So, this group seems to have this optimal but yet undefined Inflammatory response to infection. And we know that the immune system plays a role in thermal regulation. So there is a plausible mechanism behind this hypothesis. But um, you asked about limitations as well. So there's definitely limitations with big data. I mean, the biggest limitation with um, these kind of studies is granularity. So the bigger you get with the data, you get a big picture idea of what's going on, but often you don't have the details. And the main limitation of this as it pertains to uh, our study is that we don't have the immunological data on these patients. So although the group suggests an immunological basis, we don't have the cytokine responses or other surrogates uh, to test this hypothesis.
0: Okay, so let's dig a bit deeper into that. So um, a crucial element in defining patients with infection, as you did in your study, was determining what is time zero. So how did you determine time zero in your study? And do you think it's similar for all patients? For example, if someone develops an infection and they present to the hospital two hours later versus another patient who presents 10 hours later, how do you adjust for that or, uh, uh, or, or correct for that?
1: that 's a great question. I mean time zero is always a very difficult thing to pin down, especially in retrospective studies and in big data studies. So I guess i 'll start with what we used as time zero in our study. so time zero was the time you entered the ER um, so i 'll preface that by saying that all patients in our study were patients with community acquired infection, so these were patients who were in the hospital and as soon as they got to the hospital, they were suspected of having an infection, antibiotics were started within 24 hours. So we tried to make the patients as homogeneous as possible um, so that we could use a standardized time zero. And so we use time zero as the time of first vital sign as soon as you enter the ER in order to have a standardized time frame from which to start measuring temperatures from. The problem with that, as you've already mentioned, is that you know some patients might have come as soon as they had their first you know hint of an infection, others might have waited hours or even days, and unfortunately that is one of the big limitations of um, you know, big data in general and a lot of sepsis studies in general as well, because there's it's hard to catch the patient at the moment they get the infection, because I guess that's the theoretical optimal time zero is the moment when the pathogen entered the body. In big data, the goal is to find as accurate of a surrogate as we can. And so in our case, we use time of entering the ER um, in hopes that since everyone had community-acquired infections, it would even out over the um, you know over the thousands and thousands of patients in the study.
0: Gotcha. And then moving on to another point, uh, in the introduction you had mentioned that um, the plan is to look at a personalised trajectory, or an individualised trajectory for the patients, in the hope of, you know, uh, finding, you know, a, a true pattern. But in the data that you present, you you present the group summary data um, or the trajectory. So, how do you think it's going to be possible in the future to extrapolate um, the findings that you have to personalised care? For example, can you meaningfully take one person's data and based on the uh, temperature that they get at hour 0 versus hour 24, assign them to a group and predict whether or not what their mortality is going to be or what their inflammatory response is going to be? Based on your data, do you think you'll be able to do that or do you think we need more data to figure that out?
1: So I think one of the points here is that, uh, you know, there's always a difference between personalized versus precision versus individualized medicine. Um, I, I think it's uh, the goal to get each person's exact trajectory and exact inflammatory state is, might be possible, but it's still way, way in the future. Um, so I think precision medicine is uh, a, a more general term that still accounts for variations within heterogeneous syndromes like sepsis, but accounts for the fact that well, the fact that we kind of group patients together within sepsis. And so I think this gives us a method to group patients together within sepsis into what we have as four groups. Um, so beyond that, I think there is still a lot of heterogeneity within these groups themselves. But in order to kind of uh, investigate that, I think that would require additional factors to come in. Um, you know, there's a lot more clinical data, as well as biomarkers that are, you know, being studied um, uh, all the time that have try- are trying to refine these models. And so I think um, I, w- I would view it as a precision medicine approach or a start to a precision medicine approach where we can find these groups and assign these patients into these groups and continue testing the validity of these groups as far as whether they're truly um, representing different biological endotypes or not. Gotcha. And then, uh, in terms of
0: temperature measurements, um, some have raised concerns that um, if you measure, the auxiliary temperature versus the aural temperature versus the core body temperature, you can sometimes get a a variation despite performing it at the same time of uh, sometimes half a degree Celsius up to a degree Celsius. Uh, Do you know what type of measurements were performed in your database? I I see most of them would have been auxiliary or aural.
1: I think in the University of Chicago data set, it was mostly tympanic. Um, but, I mean, in general, I think that's a really good point that, you know, temperature measurements are objective in one sense, but they also have a lot of variability. Um, one thing is a location of measurement, as you mentioned, but also instrument that's used. I mean, uh, there's variations with, between temperature measurement instruments as well. Um, so one of the ways we kind of worked around that, because that was definitely an issue, was standardizing temperature measurements between sites. So, one assumption that we had to make is that within sites, they use similar temperature measurement techniques. That includes instrument as well as site of measurement. Between sites, we can't make that same assumption. So, for example, the, uh, the cohort that we used in the development uh, part of the model was in the University of Chicago data set. The cohort that we used for validation was at Loyola. So the University of Chicago data set, when you look at the temperature measurements and the temperature distribution, it is different from the Loyola distribution. And if you actually look at it, it's kind of shifted by 0.5 Celsius and 0.5 degrees Celsius. And it's funny that you kind of mentioned that because that could be a site of measurement issue or it could be an a, a instrument issue. But we have to assume that within that location within that hospital, the temperature measurement practices are standardized. And so um, we can compare between sites by standardizing temperature measurements within sites.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. Um, One interesting finding um, in your results was that in your hyperthermic um, slow resolvers, there was a difference in mortality between the development cohort and the validation cohort um, it actually doubled, it went from five percent to ten mm-hmm. percent, whereas in the other cohorts it stayed relatively the same, like two point nine, three percent, five percent, nine percent. How did you all explain that finding, given the fact that the mortalities in other groups stayed similar between both the development and validation cohorts? That was a tough one
1: to piece together. Um, and like you were saying, all the other cohorts uh, or, or all the other subphenotypes stayed pretty consistent in their mortality rates except for this one group. Um, so one of the things we looked at when we found this um, you know, striking difference was looking at the actual cohort breakdown between the two sites. So when we look at University of Chicago compared to Loyola, the general things we observe is that there's a difference in age So there's uh, the University of Chicago cohort is um, slightly younger, has more comorbidities, and there's a difference in the breakdown in terms of race as well. So it's a different set of demographics, age, and comorbidities between the two cohorts. And so our best guess is that somehow these factors may interact with temperature trajectories in a way that's not obvious when we compare the two groups.
0: Okay, gotcha, gotcha. So, um, how do you think your study advances our understanding, and how do you think it would influence a clinical practice in the next uh, five years?
1: The study advances our understanding of how to think about sepsis in several ways. So, first, it underscores the importance of routine clinical data. So, the search continues for the latest and greatest new biomarkers, but At the same time, we need to make sure we're optimizing the data we already have. Second, it emphasizes the importance of longitudinal data. So as clinicians, I think we're good at interpreting static findings, so a low blood pressure, a high lactic acid. We can manage that, and we can understand that, but we're less adept at understanding large amounts of longitudinal data, and that's where statistical tools like group-based trajectory modeling and finite mixture modeling can help. As far as clinical practice, I think the study influences clinical research more directly than clinical practice, because uh, the, the study is part of a greater trend towards precision medicine. So, the past 20 to 30 years, my belief is medicine had been about lumping and generalizations. So, we have to create broadly defined entities like sepsis and ARDS in order to facilitate early recognition and early management, but I think the next 20 years will be about splitting. It will be about breaking apart these groups into biologically relevant subgroups. And so we're going to have all sorts of methods to do that. Some of that could be routine clinical data. Some of that could be transcriptomics or other biomarkers. But once we identify these biologically relevant subgroups, the next step after that would be to use them for clinical trial enrichment. And this is the road that would lead to precision medicine. Gotcha.
0: And then in terms of the challenges that you faced when working with big data and a lot of patients in your study, um, could you maybe describe some of those challenges that you encountered and to hopefully um, enlighten some of our listeners as to what you had to go through and what they should be cognizant of when they perform their research?
1: So I think with big data, one of the big challenges, again, is the granularity of data that you get. Um, So, again, you get a big picture idea, but you miss a lot of details that might be important. Um, So I'll start with kind of from defining the cohort. So when we're defining the cohort, even the concept of figuring out who's infected in big data, it's, it's harder than it sounds because, you know, one approach could be, you have to only people who have a positive blood culture, but that would miss a lot of infection, a lot of people with infection without bacteremia. So one part is defining the cohort, and one challenge is figuring out how to define a cohort using big data. Um, and so a lot of times when you do that, it's a combination of things like a blood culture order plus antibiotics with a certain, within a certain time span of each other. Um, so that's one difficulty with big data. The other difficulty is the other part of granularity would be looking at interventions given and how that could affect, um, affect the outcomes that you're looking at. Um, so, for example, when we're looking at temperature trajectories, um, one of the limitations would be what about the interventions that might have taken place over the time that we're measuring temperature. Um, for example, acetaminophen or intravenous fluids could have thermoregulatory effects. So how do we incorporate that into the model, and how do we study that? Um, and then, and I think the other issue is just kind of making sure that we're looking at the right outcome as well. So having hard outcomes in um, in these big data sets that are standardized throughout the groups or in different hospitals as well. Um, so one uh, our outcome that we looked at was inpatient mortality. Um, So that was kind of standardized across both cohorts, no matter you know which uh, hospital you go to. And then the final thing that I think uh, the one challenge that we had was actual temperature measurements itself. Um, And we kind of talked about this briefly about how the uh, the different hospitals use different uh, temperature measurement devices, different sites of measurements. So in order to standardize between different multi-center studies. Sometimes you have to get uh, a little creative to figure out how to um, how to compare the two because you're comparing two different practices in essence.
0: Got you. And then one question that uh, I, I've uh, dealt with is missing data. Um, how did you address missing data in these cohorts?
1: That's a good question. Um, so missing data is a problem when you're talking about temperature measurements every hour. So, the way group-based trajectory modeling works is that you define kind of the increments in which you want to have this uh, outcome measured, in this case, temperature. So, in our case, we defined it by hourly blocks. So, no no patient is going to get a a temperature measurement every hour. So, by definition, we were going to have missing data. Um, So, that's one type of missing data that we're going to have just from based on frequency of measurement. The second type of missing data that we had was due to patients who might have been discharged or who might have died within the 72-hour period that we were checking temperature. So, uh, so we looked at both of these uh, pieces of missing data. So group-based trajectory modeling itself accounts for missing data under the assumption that it's missing at random. And I think that assumption holds when you're talking about frequency of temperature measurements. So when a patient gets a temperature measurement every four hours, I think it's fair to assume that the three hours in between the temperature measurements are missing at random. But we can't use that same definition of missing at random for patients who might have died or were discharged at the, before the 72 hour mark. So the way we kind of um, looked at these uh, issues was by doing sensitivity analysis. So, one sensitivity analysis was just to drop any patients who were either discharged or died within the 72 hours. So, the question is, if you disregard these patients, do we still have the same or similar model? And when we ran the model, it it turned out it was very, very similar. It had the same kind of age comorbidity um, uh, demographics and uh, outcome distribution between the four sub-phenotypes. And then as far as the temperature frequency, the way we kind of did a sensitivity analysis on that was we actually looked at if we reduced the blocks into the, instead of doing every hour, if we used every four hours which is or every three hours, which is around the average uh, time that patients get their temperatures checked, would this be a different model? And it turned out, again, it, the, it was not different. Um, it still had the same kind of distribution of age, comorbidities inflammatory markers and outcomes. So I think one uh, the best way we could think of to approach the missing data issue is by doing these sensitivity analyses and showing that the results are robust regardless of how we kind of frame the data.
0: Perfect. And I really appreciate you highlighting the importance of doing the sensitivity analyses. So based on your findings, how do you think future studies could improve on your study design and what would you like to see in future studies and future applications?
1: One important aspect of study design when it comes to longitudinal data is how to incorporate time-dependent covariates. So, for instance, we kind of talked about how temperature trajectories might be shaped by interventions like Tylenol or by IV fluids, interventions that have thermoregulatory effects. So future studies could incorporate these interventions into the modeling in order to understand their effects on temperature trajectories. But I think coming back to the main limitation of our study is that we still need to answer the question, what are the immunological responses that underlie these temperature trajectories? Because this is an important key to link temperature trajectories to personalized medicine strategies or personalized treatment strategies. Once we know the immunological correlates of temperature trajectories, we can then move towards personalizing treatment strategies based on these sub-phenotypes.
0: Gotcha. Um That's a perfect uh, uh, answer and a great way to end uh, the interview. Thank you, Dr. Bavani, for helping us out at the Breathe Easy
1: podcast. Well, Dominique, thank you for having me on Breathe Easy. It was a pleasure chatting with you.
0: Okay, and congratulations on your impressive work. Uh, looking forward to seeing more of your research.
1: Take care. Thank you. Thank you. Take care.
0: Bye. A big thank you to Dr. Siva Bavani, and a big thank you to all of you for listening to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective Podcast. I'm Dominic Pepper for the American Thoracic Society.